Good morning. Our next case is DeWalt et al. versus Hooks et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Dan Siegel, here on behalf of the plaintiff appellants. I'm joined at council's table by Christy Gronke. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The plaintiffs in this case are challenging the statewide policy and practice of subjecting thousands of people to solitary confinement, or what the defendants call restrictive housing. State prison officials have publicly acknowledged that this practice is dangerous. They have also publicly acknowledged that this practice can be and should be reformed in North Carolina. Despite these facts, the defendants have maintained a policy and practice of keeping people in these dangerous conditions for many weeks, months, and even years at a time. And so now the plaintiffs are seeking declaratory and injunctive relief that would limit how long the state may keep people in these dangerous conditions. To resolve these claims, a class action is necessary. The plaintiff class numbers in the thousands. Every plaintiff class member is raising the same claim based on the same facts and legal theory and seeking the same relief. As the trial court found, the plaintiffs are challenging conditions common to all forms of restrictive housing throughout the state. Just, just to uh, be clear that uh, you're not saying that all uh, restrictive housing violates the state or federal constitution, are you? Not at all, Your Honor. We have never alleged and we're not arguing today that solitary confinement is per se unconstitutional. The basic claim here is that the way the practice is used in the state prison system creates a substantial risk of serious harm that is unconstitutional. And so, Your Honor, uh, whatever the outcome of this case, win or lose, the ultimate outcome will be the same for every single class member. The trial court, however, denied the motion. How, how can you say it's going to be the same when uh, the trial court uh, acknowledged that some of the folks in one of the categories, uh, the average uh, period of time that somebody's there is less than 10 days, and then for other categories, for example, that I guess the named plaintiffs are in where they have found guilty of uh, assaulting an officer, uh, that theirs is much lengthier. Your Honor, those numbers don't tell the whole story because the numbers I believe Your Honor is referencing are how long is someone going to be in one of these classifications for one application of that administrative label. I think the more um, uh, informative and substantive information is what the defendants reported in discovery, which is whether we're looking at one of these classifications or whether we're looking at a sequence or a combination of these classifications, um, that is where it shows that people are sp indeed spending many weeks, months, or years in oftentimes the same cell. Someone can have their classification changed, for example, from administrative housing to disciplinary housing or control housing, and they're not moved anywhere. That person is still in the same physical uh, living conditions, and it's those physical living conditions that, of, of namely extreme social isolation <coughs> and sensory deprivation that is creating the risk of future harm that we allege is unconstitutional. But you don't dispute that other folks who went through that same series of different classifications could be moved from one place to another. Well, yes, Your Honor, they may be moved, but I don't think there's any real dispute here that the physical living conditions across classifications and across different prisons are either identical or functionally identical because we're talking about these cells, which are no bigger than 100 square feet, and um, you know, people uh, are in there for 22 to 24 hours a day, every day, with uh, strictly limited or sometimes non-existent access to congregate activity of any kind, whether that's working a job, taking a class, attending church, uh, going outside for exercise. And so I think it's those common conditions that the plaintiffs are challenging here. And the trial court found as such. The trial court said what the plaintiffs are focusing on are conditions that are common to all forms of restrictive housing throughout the state. And I believe that's on page 993 of the record in the trial court's order. 
And so that is enough here to show that there are common conditions for all plaintiff class members. And then when you take into account the written policy and the established practice of keeping people in these conditions for an extended period of time. What's an extended period of time? Is it eight days or is it six months or is it a year? Your Honor, the um, uh, scientific literature that is in the record and that has also been cited by state prison officials at the United States Supreme Court, courts across the country, is that the harm starts to manifest usually within 15 days. And so that's so why the folks that are on average there eight days would have a different claim than the folks that are there beyond 15 days based on what you've just said. That's, Your Honor, I must respectfully disagree. A, an incarcerated plaintiff does not have to wait to actually suffer mental or physical injury before they can seek relief. That's what the United States Supreme Court said in Helling versus McKinney. The Eighth, excuse me, the Eighth Amendment and therefore Section 27 protect against the risk of harm to someone's future health. And so someone goes into solitary confinement on day one, they are in these dangerous conditions and there is the concrete likelihood based on written policies and established practice that is borne out in the record that these people may indeed be kept in these conditions for extended period of time, weeks, months, or years. And that's ultimately the injury that we're trying to avert here. This case is not about seeking retrospective relief for physical or mental injury actually caused. We're trying to prevent future injury to someone's health. And that's, um, that's really the core of what this case is about, averting so, future injury. So on the one hand, you're telling me that the injury begins to accrue on day one. But on the other hand, you said it right at the outset that this is, that you're not saying that solitary confinement is per se unconstitutional. That's right. So uh, how do you reconcile those two positions? So Your Honor, if the North Carolina prison system had policies that other states have adopted, for example, Colorado or New Jersey or New York, they put a cap on how long someone can be kept in these conditions, 15 or 20 consecutive days. And so if that were true in North Carolina, that either eliminates or significantly reduces the risk that someone is going to be kept in these conditions for you know, many uh, weeks or months longer than that. And so the, the risk would be significantly reduced. And so quite frankly, if North Carolina had adopted a similar policy, we might not be here uh, arguing about it. But the state has not done that. The state has maintained written policy and established practice of doing this for thousands of people for extended periods of time. And it is well known to state prison officials uh, and courts alike, this is a dangerous practice. And it needs to be reserved for truly emergency situations. And again, we are not seeking relief that would completely ban the use of solitary confinement. Uh, we readily concede there may be emergency circumstances in a prison where it, uh, prison staff need to isolate someone from the rest of the, the regular population to protect that person, to protect other prisoners, or to protect prison staff. The problem, though, is that as it is practiced now, it is not used as a last resort in emergency circumstances. It is used ubiquitously. As the trial court found, it is used as a penalty for infractions, including speaking rudely to a correctional officer or possessing contraband, things that could not plausibly have anything to do with uh, you know, preserving safety in a prison. But looking at the class action certification issue, which is what brings the case to the court in the first place, uh, what is it about uh, the five different classifications when you look at the aspect of the different purposes that can be brought about for restrictive housing, uh, the uh, different durations that might be employed. Why should class action certification prevail when there can be so many different iterations of these five different components? Your Honor, for the same reasons that all of the cases that we cite in the briefing also certified solitary confinement classes or subclasses. Uh, I would refer your honor to the Davis versus Baldwin case, which I think addresses this directly. The plaintiffs in that case, like the plaintiffs here, are challenging what all of these classifications have in common. It doesn't matter 
that there are different procedural rules or that the cells are slightly different or that there's a different purpose because it's what the plaintiffs have in common that binds the class together. And so in Davis, in Parsons versus Ryan, in Dockery versus Fisher, in the Wilburn case, there's a, a, probably a couple other cited in the briefing, those courts granted class certification on claims that look essentially identical to ours. And those courts, courts were not concerned with these differences because like the uh, decision in Brown versus Plata at the United States Supreme Court, this has to be looked at as a whole. It's not the application of these policies and practices to any one person on any one occasion. It's a challenge to the policies and practices taken as a whole. And again, someone might be in one classification. The classification changes. Um, the, the, you know, the, the purported purpose of the classification changes. But the person inside the cell is still experiencing the same kind of injury and they're still seeking the same kind of relief on the same claim and the same legal theory. So those We're certainly understanding that these are real people and therefore we should look at it that way instead of just some broad swath of individuals that uh, have lost their freedom. But in terms of looking at the fact that we are to look at the commonality of all of these individuals, thousands as you say, uh, and looking at the, the principles of uh, predominance and superiority and other aspects of these matters that need to be looked at through a legal lens, what is it that would bind all of them so much together in a legal way from the law standpoint mm -hmm. that would have us to say that they all should be considered within the same swath of a legal proceeding as a class action? Your Honor, in Walmart uh, versus Dukes, the United States Supreme Court said that in this kind of case, uh, often civil rights cases, where a plaintiff class is challenging generally applicable policy and practice and seeking indivisible relief, predominance and superiority are self-evident because you know, state policy will invariably affect different people in different ways. For example, in the Falkenberry case, uh, this court acknowledged that the unconstitutional state action would result in different uh, degrees of injury to the named plaintiffs and, or excuse me, to, to the class members, and that different class members may have different understandings, I think, of, of the contract issue in that case. But what bound that class together was that it was the same kind of harm and it was the same kind of relief sought. And so that case is a different context, but I think the principle applies here too. The, the kind of harm here is the same. It is being subjected to policy and practice that keeps people in dangerous living conditions for extended periods of time. And the relief sought is indivisible. The court is not going to have to go plaintiff by plaintiff and say, you get uh, X number of damages. You get this kind of injunction tailored to your circumstances. The relief would be in the form of a change to statewide policy. And so that would naturally afford relief to every single person who is subject to that policy at the same time. Would, While it's would, obvious that to a great extent, a change in policy would benefit anyone who goes into restrictive housing of this nature, but looking at it from another standpoint, could there be some circumstance where someone who's a member of the class, should the class be certified, not get the kind of relief that he or she should be entitled to get because with the whole class being certified and, and being inclusive of everyone who is in that category of the class, that someone is not getting the same kind of benefit that he or she should warrant in terms of relief. Your Honor, I think your question goes directly to uh, the Ninth Circuit's decision in Pryor versus Correa, which we cite in the opening brief. In that case, it was in the context of the California state prison system, in the context of the, the, the Plata litigation. And the issue there was, well, the plot of litigation is about institutional reform and uh, a statewide injunction. And the question was, is this individual plaintiff who is seeking individualized relief in the form of, I, I think, medical care, precluded from bringing that action because they were already a member of the plot of class, they were already getting some kind of relief in the form of statewide care? And the court said, uh, this person can bring an individualized claim because an individualized claim for relief under the Eighth Amendment is substantively different 
than the kind of claim in Plata and these other cases that are alleging a systemic constitutional violation and seeking a systemic remedy. And so in this case, if the plaintiffs prevail and there's some kind of class-wide injunction, it may be the case um, that the injunction is not followed or that someone slips through the cracks or otherwise someone has very particularized individual circumstances and they're not getting the relief they need. Or maybe they need to seek damages as the only thing that could make them whole. Under this principle, there would be nothing stopping them from filing their own claim if they need some kind of relief that was not granted um, on a class-wide basis. So your class action certification issue here would include an opt-out opportunity for one who feels as though he or she is not going to be sufficiently covered by the class? No, Your Honor. I think because it's an injunctive relief case, it has to be a non-opt-out class. The point is that in this case, the Eighth Amendment or the Section 27 claim being brought is substantively different than in a claim for individualized relief. There would not be any need to opt out of the class because that person could enjoy the class-wide remedy in the form of a statewide policy change and would not be precluded from seeking individualized relief, whether that's damages or a specific course of medical care or whatever. So I think the, the class would have to be um, non-opt-out because that's just generally how I understand injunctive relief cases to work. Um, but there would be no, no problem of, um, no due process problem of a, of a class member being denied the opportunity to seek individualized relief should they need it. Help me, help me understand this, a, a different relief-related issue, if you would. I cannot keep all the acronyms straight for the five different classes, and I apologize for my inability to do that. But essentially, as you've already indicated in one of your earlier answers, there are five different programs, for lack of a better word, that will result in someone being put in, in uh, the type of confinement that we're talking about here. The, the relief that you are requesting, would that involve changes to the rules applicable to each of those different categories? It may, Your Honor. Um, first, I would just I mean, because if you, if you look at the briefs, it appears that, <coughs> and I understand you can move from one to the other based upon whatever individual facts may be, but each of them have somewhat different eligibility criteria. seems like a strange word to use, but I hope, hope you understand what I mean by it. different, at least potential durations, different uh, requirements for being there, a little, you know, some differences in the terms of confinement. I mean, they're talked about in the brief. To, to the, the type of relief that you are suggesting could be afforded on a class-wide basis would have, would or would not require <coughs> modification to the specific rules for each of these five uh, classifications, categories, whatever the right word is. I think it probably would, Your Honor, because each of these classifications, none of them have a cap on how long anyone can be kept <coughs> in any of them. Uh, and, and by that, again, just to make sure I'm following you, by that you mean none, none have a cumulative cap that would be binding regardless of how many times the criteria for being put in the particular type of confinement occur. Yes, that, that's okay. true, true right. too. That, that's, I I, that's what I'm trying to do is make sure I understand what your what your argument is. Yes. So in, in terms of the relief cell, I think it has two basic parts that would require changes to the prison system's policies. One would be a change in criteria of when someone can be put in these circumstances in the first place. It should be rare. And second, how long someone can be kept there. And so again, there is no cap on and, consecutive and by, and by the, the second of those, I take it, if I take it incorrectly, tell me, that by the second of those two statements, you mean a total aggregate length limitation on how long a particular person, regardless of what that person does, doesn't do, would be subject to being held in restrictive confinement? I think that's correct, Your Honor. Okay. I would just and, if, and, if, and if it's not, please, please tell no, me. That's your, what your I'm Honor, trying I think to find that, out. that is correct. Okay. Um, so, so let me just follow up with that. So even if there's a series of assaults by an uh, inmate against prison officials, 
uh, once they reach the cap, the prison officials can no longer use solitary as uh, one of the ways to try to cope with the ongoing assaults. Only if it is absolutely necessary to keep someone in there, Your Honor. So, I think so, so the cap would not be a cap? I think the cap would be a cap in the vast majority of circumstances. And there may be some circumstances which are truly exigent where you have to go beyond that. I would just point out, Your Honor, that this is an issue of crafting a remedy that the trial court could only grapple with after the uh, plaintiffs prevail and prove a constitutional violation and the factual record is, is fully developed. I understand um, you know, that this is an important question, but as Quorum says, we can't say right now precisely what the injunctive relief is going to look like. We have uh, given notice of what it should broadly look like, the broad parameters we are trying. We have a substantial risk of serious harm. We are trying to minimize that risk for our clients. And the specific way you do that, specifically in, in a complicated prison case, um, really can't happen until the plaintiffs prove a constitutional violation and the trial court's probably going to have to um, as in Plata and other cases, employ the aid of a special master or a monitor who can help it figure out how to, um, to, to craft the relief and how to enforce it. The court is certainly responsible for saying what the Constitution says and requires. Um, at what point does the court violate separation of powers by invading the province of the executive or legislative branches since they are the policy makers? Well, Your Honor, under quorum, uh, it would have to be the, I believe, essentially the, the least intrusive remedy possible. If the uh, Excuse me, what do you mean least intrusive remedy? Well, for separation of powers purposes, the quorum court was aware that the separation of powers issue it is certainly um, an issue the trial court would have to be aware of. Um, but if the executive branch is responsible for a widespread civil rights violation, then the judiciary is duty-bound to uh, order a remedy for that violation and enforce it. Um, We're to say what the law is, but with regard to the policies that are chosen to address the uh, violation, any violation, uh, isn't it in the first instance the responsibility of the executive or legislative branches to address any identified constitutional violation? The executive branch? In this case, the executive branch, I assume, has developed these policies. Yes, Your Honor, they, they have developed these policies, and the executive branch has recognized that its use of restrictive housing is dangerous, and it has reformed its use of it somewhat. As I understand it, DPS no longer uses restrictive housing for juveniles. DPS, to its credit, has created therapeutic diversion units to, uh, to attempt to limit the use of restrictive housing for people with serious mental illness. The problem is uh, it, we still have this, uh, we still have people in these conditions on a massive scale. And so if the executive branch is unwilling or unable to correct that constitutional violation, then it's the duty of the courts to step in and order a remedy and, and to enforce it. And the, uh, I would point your honor to the United States Supreme Court's decision again in the Plata case, where Justice Kennedy said, uh, courts absolutely have to be mindful of, um, in that case, I'm talking about federalism, but it's the same idea, separation of powers, it's respect for the executive branch. However, courts cannot simply ignore constitutional violations because it deals with the issue of prison administration. The judiciary has a responsibility to enforce the rights of all persons, including incarcerated people who are at a, um, I think, a uniquely vulnerable place of having their rights violated by government officials. Do you agree that we review the uh, decision on class action uh, litigation under our North Carolina, of course, uh, rule as well as our North Carolina case law? We review what the trial court did for abuse of discretion. Mostly, Your Honor, but this court has also said for issues of law, it's reviewed de novo. And as we argue in the briefs, the trial court committed errors of law at the predominance analysis, the superiority analysis, uh, and the adequacy analysis. So I don't think this court needs to disturb the trial court's findings of fact in order to reverse here. Because at, at bottom, 
the trial court had a misunderstanding of the nature of the plaintiff's claims. The trial court thought under the Eighth Amendment and therefore Section 27, it is always going to be an individualized inquiry based on a plaintiff's unique personal circumstances. And as a matter of law, that is simply incorrect. Like the claims in Plata and in Parsons and in the other cases in the briefing, it is an inherently a not individualized claim, which, which weighs in favor of predominance, it weighs in favor of superiority because these claims are identical, you can decide them all at the same time. And so, uh, and in, in terms of adequacy too, the trial court thought, well, individualized defenses are going to get in the way of the named plaintiff's claims, and as a matter of law, again, that is incorrect. Any defense uh, that the defendants raise has to be viewed uh, to the class as a whole. They would have to justify their policy and practice as a whole and not to any one particular class member. And Your Honors, I see that I'm eating into my rebuttal time, so I'd like to reserve the balance. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Please accord. I'm Orlando Rodriguez, and along with my co-counsel, Mary Carla Babb, represent the appellees in this matter, the North Carolina Department of Public Safety and its secretary. The trial court did not abuse its discretion when it denied the plaintiff's motion for class certification, and this court should affirm that denial for three independent reasons. The first is that the trial court correctly concluded that the plaintiffs had failed to establish the existence of a class because they did not demonstrate a common predominating issue. The second reason that this court should affirm the trial court's denial of class certification here is that the trial court's conclusion that the named plaintiffs in this case are not fair and adequate representatives of the purported class, that conclusion was based upon record evidence, competent record evidence, was not an arbitrary conclusion, and was thus not an abuse of discretion. The third reason that this court should affirm the trial court's denial of class certification is that the trial court's conclusion that class litigation in this case would not be a superior method of adjudication, that conclusion was also based on competent evidence, was not an arbitrary decision, and was thus not an abuse of discretion. Now I want to discuss that first, uh, the first reason supporting the trial court's denial of class certification here, and that is the, the conclusion that the plaintiffs had, did not demonstrate a lack of a common predominating issue. There are two uh, legs upon which that conclusion stands. The first is the trial court's conclusion and finding that the plaintiffs, in seeking to certify the broad class that they did, the plaintiffs ignored several fundamental differences across the five challenged housing assignments. Some of the justices' questions this morning to Mr. Siegel alluded to some of those differences. They include things like what I would call, what we call, the peniological purpose. This is something that Justice Morgan um, alluded to in some of his questions, I believe. The peniological purpose refers to the reason that an individual may be placed in a particular, one of these particular challenge settings. The trial court received evidence as to the purposes, the, the legitimate correctional peniological purposes that each of these five challenge settings serve. Another fundamental difference is the duration of time that these individuals spend in these five discrete um, restrictive housing classifications. The average time, as Chief Justice Newby referred to, differs across the challenge settings. But in addition, Mr. Siegel referred a couple and, of times. And, and, and again, as a, as a matter of, as, as a somewhat mathematically challenged person, uh, your colleague responded to the discussion about the time links by saying, yes, there are average links within each of these five classifications, but that since one can move from one classification to the other, depending upon what happens with respect to that particular individual, those limits, I mean, his suggestion, at least as I took it, was that those limits don't mean a lot. Uh, what, assuming I correctly understand what his argument on that point was, and he can correct me when he gets into rebuttal, and I hope it will if I'm wrong, uh, what's your response to the suggestion that we don't look at the average duration within each classification? 
Well, my, my response is that the statistical evidence that the trial court received was discrete as to the average within those, within those individual classifications. And even if you combine a couple of those averages and look at the policy that corresponds, the individual policy that corresponds with that particular restrictive housing assignment, a couple of things become evident. For instance, uh, restrictive housing for control purposes, which is one of the challenge settings, and HCON, which is another one of the challenge settings, both of those policies provide for an outer limit upon which the department has to essentially recertify or make a decision as to whether to retain an individual in that setting or, or move them to a different setting. And th <coughs> those limits are six months in both, in both policies. The average duration of time in just HCON is um, 180 days, which is just around six months as well as in, um, in the restrictive housing for control is 131 days, which is less than six months. So when you view the totality of the numerical evidence regarding the amount of time that these individuals spend in restrictive housing, it becomes clear that whether you're, you're combining stays in administrative and then disciplinary and then perhaps moving to control housing, those average times tell you what, they correspond directly with the penological purpose of that restrictive housing assignment and the procedural safeguards with how individuals are to be uh, placed in one and then transferred to another. But, but, but help me understand why those differences would matter if what the plaintiffs are seeking or what they're alleging. And here, remembering, we're not to decide the merits of their claim, correct? We're just assessing whether or not they met the standard to be um, proceed as a class action. And, and so if they are seeking, if, if their allegation is that it is cruel and unusual punishment or cruel or unusual punishment under either the federal or state constitutions for, for people to be kept in restrictive housing over a certain period of days, so longer than 15 days is cruel and unusual punishment. That may or may not be right on the merits, but that's their claim. Why would it matter whether someone is um, potentially uh, kept in solitary confinement for 135 days versus 160 days when what they're saying is that no one should be kept over a, a, a lower limit than that. Right. Uh, in response, I would say that first the plaintiff's claim is, is not that there is an outer limit on days or a cap as, as Justice Newby and Mr. Siegel discussed. In fact, they say that what they're seeking is to require the Department of Public Safety to only use restrictive housing for the least amount of time as necessary. We don't know what that particular number is. Mr. Siegel referenced 15 days as based on um, some amalgamation of, of uh, scientific literature, but that's not what they, what they sought specifically in this litigation. And to Your Honor's earlier uh, point on why it should matter, the reason that it should matter is that the plaintiffs had the obligation of demonstrating a common predominating issue. And in response to that obligation, the trial court reviewed the evidence that, it, that was presented to it and concluded that the fact that there are these various um, averages and various lengths of time that people can spend in these types of settings that would have an impact on the nature of the type of claim that they would that those individual class members might bring effectively uh, shaping the nature of their claims such that the duration was a factor that cut against a common predominating issue. But you, you would agree that the trial court's findings of fact, um, I think there's one through 19 at pages 975 to um, 979, those are the findings of fact that um, we should examine to see whether the trial court has correctly as a matter of law determined that class action status shouldn't apply. Yes, I would agree with that. And I would also add to that that ultimately the test for an abuse of discretion standard, which is what the general test is for um, a review of a certification order is uh, to decide whether the decision or determined by this court to determine whether the decision of the trial court was manifestly unsupported by reason or so arbitrary that it must could not have been the uh, the result of a reasoned decision. But you would also agree that if the trial court made an error of law that 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 we review de novo. Absolutely your honor and we contend that the trial court did not commit any errors of law in this in this in, in this uh, order. Um, some of the other salient and very important factors that the plaintiffs glossed over, as the trial court correctly noted, are what we call the attendant conditions. In other words, the day-to-day the -day of being in the various housing assignments. Things like the frequency of visitation changes depending on which housing assignment you're in. 
Some housing assignments, there's no limitations <coughs> on frequency of visitation. In others, there are. Whether an individual can have access to a radio, which provides environmental stimulation, which is something that the, the plaintiffs and, and the, the, um, the academics, um, one of the things they hold against the use of restrictive housing is a lack of stimulation. Well, things like access to a radio and TV privileges, they differ and change depending on not just the challenge setting, but also the facility that one's in. Additionally, another important uh, condition that changes is whether individuals can recreate in small groups. In some settings, in some of the challenge restrictive housing assignments, they can recreate together in small groups. In others, they must do so individually. The trial court concluded based on this presentation of evidence that those differences were indeed fundamental and overrode whatever shared characteristics did exist among the challenge settings. Now, the second leg supporting the trial court's first conclusion that, or excuse me, the first, yeah, the trial court's first conclusion of a lack <coughs> of common predominating issue is that the plaintiffs failed to support their assertion of a uniform risk of harm with sufficient evidence. Here it's important to point out that because of an absence of, a, of, of case law from this court directing what the standard, the evidentiary standard should be on a motion for class certification, the trial court looked to another trial court in North Carolina, which identified preponderance of the evidence standard as the appropriate standard, and the federal courts also apply the preponderance of the evidence standard. And I would point out that the plaintiffs had not challenged that aspect of the trial court's order. So the trial court was operating on a preponderance of the evidence standard and was thus tasked with evaluating whether the plaintiffs had met that evidentiary burden when, this, when ruling on the, the assertion or determining whether the assertion was supported, the plaintiff's assertion being that there was a uniform risk of harm across these challenge settings. So what was the evidence that the plaintiffs presented? Well, the plaintiffs had an opportunity to conduct discovery. They issued very straightforward written uh, interrogatories, which were responded to. They didn't take any depositions, no site inspections, no interviews, no expert reports, proceeded to file the motion for certification and base that motion primarily on two buckets of evidence. One being affidavits. Affidavits, by their very nature, can only speak to the personal knowledge of the affiant and thus were of limited value in providing the court with any sort of assessment of what uniform risks may or may not exist across the five challenge settings. The second bucket of evidence that the plaintiffs rely on are four documents. Two of those documents are academic works that have no discussion whatsoever with North Carolina or North Carolina prisons. And so those are also of limited value in informing the court as to what North Carolina prisons what the conditions are like in North Carolina prisons in the challenge settings. But uh, regarding that evidence, isn't that exactly the kind of evidence that the Fourth Circuit found in Porter versus Clark um, in 2019 to be sufficient evidence to survive summary judgment? So not just a question of whether they um, meet class, they come forward with enough evidence to certify as a class, but actually have they come forward with enough evidence to survive summary judgment? And the Fourth Circuit found that um, evidence to be, that essentially very similar evidence to be sufficient for summary judgment purposes. That's correct. And I believe as well that the plaintiffs in the Porter case, which is an interesting case, the plaintiffs in the Porter case also presented uh, additional evidence. I believe they may have had a far more robust record uh, before the court in that case than just what the plaintiffs had here. So I believe there was more than just the, the academic works. In addition, Porter turned on the, um, the fact that the folks that were challenged there, which was a narrow class of individuals in solitary confinement, it was, it was individuals that were placed in solitary confinement merely because of their sentence of the underlying crime being, uh, being life, uh, life imprisonment, they were placed on what effectively amounted to solitary confinement based on that basis alone. And so the trial court in that case noted that, um, based on the record, that those individuals were, were, gonna, were successful on their Eighth Amendment claim. However, this case is much different. We do not have that narrow of a class. And we have peniological purposes that support and, and, and inform the various types of restrictive housing that are being challenged. And in fact, the Fourth Circuit actually noted that had the defendants come up with some peniological purpose supporting their assignment, the assignment of those folks to, to restrictive housing, the case may have, may have been different. Again, what, what drove, in my reading of the case, what drove the analysis there was the mere reason of being convicted and sentenced to life in prison is what caused those individuals to be placed in restrictive housing. Right, but that was a summary judgment opinion. And, and so then is the, if, if your contention is that because 
um, there are different penological purposes. This can't be as broad a class action. Is there, it wouldn't, it, it, and I don't know that that's what the trial court in this case said in its order, but um, wouldn't it be appropriate to, if the class should be narrowed to some degree, that, that the trial court consider that rather than just th throwing out any ability to bring a class action? Well, of course, the trial court could, I guess, sua sponte have uh, carved up the, the class, but it was plaintiffs did not request that, uh, nor have they challenged the trial court's action in not sua sponte dividing up the, the class into subclasses. So I have a slightly different type of question, which is, isn't it beneficial to have this as a class action? Because isn't there the risk that if given that they are ch the challenge is prospective, and the requested relief is injunctive relief regarding the policy of DPS. If individuals are bringing an individual case one by one, don't you risk the um, multiple courts coming up with multiple answers as to what might be the um, Eighth Amendment violation here and what might be the appropriate injunction if, in fact, there is an Eighth Amendment violation? And remembering that we're not here about the merits. We're just here about the wisdom of a class action mechanism in these circumstances. Wouldn't it actually benefit the state to have one case to decide these issues rather than multiple cases from all sorts of individuals? Well, I think that's exactly the analysis that the trial court um, engaged in, in in its discretion, and that and that analysis is, is reviewed on an abuse of discretion. Specifically, uh, recently, the Blue Ridge uh, McMillan v. Blue Ridge case, I believe it was entitled, uh, noted that the superiority uh, uh, calculus, which is what I believe Your Honor is referring to, that that's reviewed on an abuse of discretion standard. And to your point about the potential of inconsistent um, outcomes. Uh, to be sure, uh, one judge in uh, one county may come to a different conclusion as to whether a conditions of confinement claim is successful and award damages <coughs> or not. But what's what's well, but sorry. remember, they're not seeking damages; I, they're seeking yeah. injunctive relief prospectively. Exactly, and I was um, that's exactly where I was getting. There is no requirement of class certification in order to seek statewide injunction, barring or enjoining the state from applying what a court has determined to be an unconstitutional practice. So an individual plaintiff or groups of plaintiffs proceeding as individuals could, could, it could and do regularly challenge state action and seek um, widespread statewide injunctive relief that would apply to the entire state. So it is not a prerequisite to class certification. Right, and that's where it seems to me the danger of inconsistent um, proceedings and, and multiple proceedings um, in, in courts across the, courtrooms across our state, um, that, it, that it would be, uh, and I understand it's an abuse of discretion standard, but, but, the, but the purpose of having the class action mechanism is to avoid that outcome. Certainly, and that was, that's the balancing test that the trial court is, 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 is supposed to do when deciding the superiority, and, and that is what Judge Hart and the trial court in this case did. Um, and it found in its discretion that, that a class litigation here would not be a superior method of adjudication because it would simply devolve into a series of mini trials where the, the, the focus of the litigation would turn on the five different challenge, challenge settings as well as the various differences that cut across those five challenges. And when you multiply those together, you have an array of permutations of different uh, you know, peniological uh, interests being analyzed as it relates to HCON versus peniological interests being analyzed as it relates to administrative segregation. And that actually cuts against the, the, the intent of the class action device, which is to, with one felt swoop, with one stroke, decide all issues. And that's what the court found was, was, not, was lacking here. And that actually cuts back to the common predominating issue, uh, issue point. And so the trial court reviewed the evidence, which included this, these scientific documents, and, and in its, in its uh, findings concluded that that evidence was insufficient to support the, um, the assertion that there was indeed a uniform risk of harm. Would the, would the state, assuming hypothetically that a plaintiff sought certification for a class consisting of people in or placed in the future in each of these five different categories separately. In other words, say that you had five, you know, program-specific proposed classes, would the state take the same position that it has with uh, about an overall class? Well, uh, speaking only for myself as I can. Well, I, I, that's <laughs> I probably can. all I could ask I, you to do. I would, I would, um, 
I would, I would suggest that that would be a much, uh, a much different set of circumstances than we have here. That'd be a, a narrower class. And in fact, that's the, some of the cases that plaintiffs rely upon, Porter being one of them, and in various other cases where class actions were certified, involve the very thing that Your Honor is discussing. That is, uh, challenges to specific types of restrictive housing or specific types of people, juveniles, individuals with certain intellectual disabilities. Uh, people sentenced to life in prison and then therefore only uh, being put in restrictive housing. So if there were a subsequent action with narrower classes, we'd obviously have to look at those classes and see how they are defined. Um, but it would be a very, uh, very different situation than what the plaintiffs uh, did here. In fact, they cast the widest net possible, which is uh, why the trial court concluded they failed to establish a common predominating issue. Now, in response to the trial court's conclusions on the common predominating issue piece, uh, the plaintiffs make three essential arguments. First, they argue that simply seeking uniform injunctive relief is sufficient to establish preeminence, or predominance, excuse me. Mr. Siegel referred to the Walmart v. Dukes case when he argued this. This is really just an effort to sidestep their evidentiary burden of showing with a preponderance of the evidence that there is indeed a common predominating issue. Nonetheless, that effort should fail because the Walmart v. Dukes case and the portion of Walmart v. Dukes that Mr. Siegel referred to, it actually turns on a subsection of the federal class action rule that we simply don't have in our class action rule. Secondly, and I mentioned this a second ago, the, the import of the Walmart v. Dukes case is that what you're hunting for on a common predominating issue is not merely a common question. It's rather common resolution. It's a resolution that will take care of all of the claims. That's what you're hunting for. And in this case, that's missing. Does, it, does the common issue in order to predominate have to take care of all of the claims? I believe so, Your Honor. The one-stroke analysis. Words, you would have to, have to resolve everything that could possibly be done in that particular case with respect to one or some small number of common issues. Yes, Your Honor. That's the one-stroke import from the Walmart v. Duke's case is that what you're looking for is a one-stroke solution to all of the, of the claims, which is why the class mechanism is and can be such a, an efficient use of litigation. But in this case, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. The second point that the plaintiffs make in response to the trial court's conclusion on the predominance piece is that federal courts across the country routinely certify classes where individuals are challenging systemic policies despite individual differences. Indeed, that is true. However, here, the plaintiffs overemphasize the extent to which the defendants or the trial court relied on individual differences among class members to find against the common predominating issue. That's not what drove the trial court's conclusion here. What supports the trial court's conclusion on the common predominating issue is not that there are individual differences. Indeed, there would be individual differences within the class, but that's not what the court rests its hat on. The court focused on, instead, the two things that I just discussed. The fact that the plaintiff's class ignores fundamental differences across the five challenge settings and that the plaintiffs did not meet their evidentiary burden of supporting their assertion of a uniform risk of harm. That's what the trial court was focused on. And then the cases that the plaintiffs um, referred to in, in argument in their briefs, Brown v. Plata, Hutto v. Finney, yeah, those are prison cases and they involve class actions, but those are remedies cases. They are not cases that deal with the, the nuts and bolts of whether class determination was appropriate. Also, other cases the plaintiffs referred to, Davis v. Baldwin in particular, Wilburn v. Nelson, Parsons, Dockery, those cases certified classes on far more robust record evidence than what we have here. Things like expert reports, depositions, site inspections, things that the plaintiffs had the opportunity to do to try to bolster their assertion of a uniform risk of harm, but chose not to do. The last point the plaintiffs if, make. If I understood Mr. Siegel's reply brief, his response to the argument that you just made was, in essence, look, we've got this Vera, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, report that was commissioned by the state. It's comprehensive. It ought to be deemed enough given what it is. I mean, what, what would you say in response to that argument, assuming that I've correctly characterized how he's made it? Indeed, the, the, Vera, the Department of Public Safety invited Vera in to conduct an analysis of its use of restricted housing so that it can improve 
that use of restrictive housing. Uh, but the VERA report is not the stinging indictment that the plaintiffs make it out to be. I'm and sorry, it, what, did you, what did you just say? Excuse me. The, the VERA report is not as, as, it's not the stinging indictment that the plaintiffs make it out to be. Um, they actually commend the department for taking proactive efforts in, in trying to improve its use of restrictive housing. And the VERA report reviewed and analyzed policies, many of which are, are, have since been reformed. And the trial court received the VERA report uh, was briefed on it, was argued to the trial court, and the trial court weighed that evidence along with the other evidence and concluded that the plaintiffs had failed to establish preponderance of the evidence. So the plaintiff's third um, argument on the, on the uh, common predominating issue here is that the trial court impermissibly addressed the merits of the claim, and they, they argue this happened in three ways. First, that the trial court impermissibly um, accepted as constitutional uh, some of the challenge conditions. That argument simply lacks merit. The plaintiffs contended that their um, common predominating issue was established because of the shared characteristics across the three settings. And indeed, the trial court received that argument and then weighed that argument based on the other evidence of the fundamental differences across the challenge settings and simply concluded that the, the plaintiff's assertion that these shared characteristics were, would override the non-shared characteristics was, was not sufficient. The trial court simply disagreed with that assertion. There was nothing improper about doing that. The second way the plaintiffs contend that the trial court impermissibly addressed the merits is when uh, the trial court concluded that the plaintiffs failed to support their assertion with evidence of a uniform risk of harm. This is what I just discussed. That is the trial court's job on a class certification. It is to take the evidence is presented, apply the preponderance of the evidence standard, and then determine whether the plaintiffs had met that, that standard, and the trial court concluded that they had not. Nothing improper about doing so. The last uh, way that the plaintiffs contend the trial court impermissibly addressed the merits is when, they ref when the trial court references uh, possible roadblocks and defenses that might crop up as to some class members but not others. Um, here, the plaintiff's argument fails again because their contention was that since they are bringing since all class members would be making the same legal claim, they have a common predominating issue. The trial court received that contention and simply noted that in the face of a common legal claim, there will be instances where some defenses may apply to some individuals and not others, and thus that contention of a common legal claim supporting a common predominating issue was not supported by the record evidence in the law. What would be your response to uh, the concern that the trial court uh, perhaps uh, went further than necessary in terms of assessing whether or not a class action certification was appropriate here uh, with the trial court, again, to quote what you had quoted a short time ago, uh, using those words that uh, the matters could devolve into a series of many trials uh, as opposed to a compact class, and even going so far as to say that perhaps these were better uh, raised in federal court or before the North Carolina Industrial Commission. How would you defend those statements of the trial court as not exceeding the authority to just minimally decide whether or not a class action certification was appropriate? Sure. I, I believe that uh, Judge Hardin's, the, those references were made in regard to the portion of the order, I think, on the superiority context here. Um, and in that regard, I think Judge Hardin, the trial court enjoys broad discretion in, in all matters pertaining to class certification. That's um, a, a quote from a recent uh, opinion from this court. And so I don't, I'm not aware of any opinions from this court that limit um, what factors may or may not be um, uh, referred to in the superiority analysis. Is it an abuse of discretion, arguably, to go beyond talking about whether or not there is certification of the class and go into such other areas related, though perhaps not minimally necessary, in terms of talking about what these plaintiffs would be better off doing, potentially, in deciding whether or not there should be a class action? I think it would be an abuse of discretion. Anything that is not cannot be uh, tied-based to reason or can be construed as an arbitrary discussion or basis of a, of a conclusion, I think that would be an abuse of discretion, but I do not read any of that in Judge Harding's uh, uh, order. Let me ask you about something you said a few minutes ago about the <clears throat> that individual, as I understand, and correct me if I understood this incorrect, wrong, that individual inmates could bring a, an action anywhere that could affect statewide policy. Um, and is, is the state conceding that any inmate could bring an individual lawsuit and challenge the 
creation of the statewide policies and the categories of restricted housing and um, bring that, that would be superior <coughs> to having a number of people bring that as a, as a group? Well, I think as long as the well, other pleading requirements are satisfied, such as standing, um, then yes, I think that an individual can challenge a, a state action and the a remedy if successful could apply to the entire state and would benefit individuals without the need of class certification. And that any, an individual could challenge the, the policy of creating the various class categories of restricted housing and, and all of that um, in order to, to ask the department to address each of those in a broad way? Well, I'm, I'm not a standing expert, so I don't know if somebody would have standing to do so, but if they did have standing to seek to make that claim, I, I believe that they, they could bring that claim, yes. Okay, thank you. Well, I have one minute left. I want to address the, um, the last two reasons supporting uh, the denial of certification here. The, plaintiff, the trial court concluded that the, these named plaintiffs, based on their personal experiences, were outliers and that based on the record evidence it received, they would not be fair and adequate representatives. That conclusion was a reasoned decision, was not an arbitrary decision, and was thus not an abuse of discretion. It supplies this court with a second basis for affirming certification, and that is even if they had established a class, which we do not believe that they have. Um, the third reason is um, the superiority issue, which we've already discussed. And so in, in my <coughs> last uh, few minutes, I just want to reiterate that we stand on our briefing with regard to the secondary issue, that this court does not need to address that matter. Um, and I don't yield the rest of my time because I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, counsel. Uh, rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, I'll start with uh, briefly talking about the superiority of the class action method. The trial court said uh, class action is not superior because individual plaintiffs can go to the industrial commission or they can go to federal court. I think that amounts to an error of law. The industrial commission does not have a jurisdiction over constitutional claims, can't issue injunctive relief. Federal court can issue injunctive relief, but would not have subject matter jurisdiction over these claims. So an alternative method of adjudication can't be superior if there would not be any adjudication at all. And so for those reasons, I think the trial court committed legal error in its superiority analysis. Um, Justice Hudson uh, asked a question about whether an individual class member could bring this kind of claim and obtain statewide relief. And I am pleasantly surprised at my colleague's answer that indeed they can. However, for practical reasons, a class action, I think, is still necessary. Because if you have one plaintiff alleging a systemic constitutional violation, it is just, as a practical matter, much easier to moot out that person's claim. So person's claim gets mooted out, the larger constitutional violation is still there. But let's say that person prevails. I think the trial court is still going to be, it's still going to have to limit the scope of relief towards that one person. So that's good news for that one person, but again, we still have this systemic problem that is across the entire state institution. And just as a practical matter, that's what class actions are for. Since Brown versus Board of Education, when, whether we're talking about a prison system or a child welfare system, any kind of complicated state institution, you need a class in most instances to be able to uh, affect an appropriate scope of remedy. I would like to um, spend my last couple minutes, unless there are other questions about class certification, addressing the constitutional issue here. And I think the, the parties agree that answering the constitutional question should not affect the answer to class certification, but we know from this court's recent decision in State versus Kelleher that the trial court's decision was wrong. The trial court said, under State versus Green, Section 27 has to be interpreted in lockstep with the Eighth Amendment. And this court said in Kelleher that is incorrect. State con er, excuse me, Section 27 must be construed independently of the Eighth Amendment. And in some contexts, it may provide even greater protection. And so the trial court's primary analysis for the constitutional issue we know is incorrect. And so at the very least, we would ask the court to vacate and remand with reconsideration in light of Kelleher and that would be so regardless of this court's resolution of the Rule 23 question. But we would urge this court to go ahead and reverse because this is a pure question of law and it has been properly presented to this court. The question is, 
does a Section 27 claim for prospective injunctive relief require the deliberate and different standard? And we think the answer is no. Start with the text. What is unusual? Something that is rare. Can that change based on whether a state official knows about it or wishes it to be so? I don't think it can. I think it either is or it isn't. It is a purely objective question. Then look at the word cruel. Someone who is in state custody may experience treatment that is dangerous, extremely painful, degrading, or even deadly. And that would be so regardless of whether a single identifiable state prison official intends it to be so or knows it to be so. And that is precisely what the Washington State Supreme Court recently decided in the matter of Williams case, which we cite in our reply brief. They, um, that court, essentially, which was unanimous, is essentially rejecting the deliberate and different standard for all the reasons that we discuss in our brief. And um, because this is a pure question of law, and this case has already been pending for nearly three years at this point, we think that the most efficient thing to do would be to go ahead and address the issue now. And we would urge the court to reverse on the constitutional question as well as on the Rule 23 question. Uh, and I only have seven seconds left, so I will yield that. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Clark.